Welcome, everybody, to another faithful edition of Not Safe for Wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper. Leia Rose. Brandon Buchanan. And today joining us, we have a wonderful guest. He is a nominee for the Green Party presidential candidacy. He is Ian Schlackman. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. If you haven't been caught up on the show too much, we've been trying to do an interview series of the various contenders for the Green Party nomination. It's been wonderful so far. We talked to uh, Sednam Curry and Howie Hawkins before, and now we're going to talk with, as Kennedy said, Mr. Ian Schlackman, who, if nominated, I don't have the facts right in front of me right now, but if nominated, will be one of, if not the youngest nominee for a major-ish political party ever <laughs> at 35 or just about. Say hello, Mr. Schlackman. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, that's that's about right. I'm 34 right now. We started this campaign at 33 and I'll be 35 just in time for the election. You'll just be aging right in. It's like when people are like planning things around their 21st birthday, you know, <laughs> <laughs> except instead of, a, instead of a big party, you planned a presidential run. <laughs> Absolutely. Essentially, yeah. We can cut into questions right now if we want, but is there anything you just kind of want to, is there a spiel you have to say about your campaign before we get into questions? Uh, I, I, I really enjoy questions, so I'm eager to dive into them and, and hear what you all are thinking about. So we could start there. Yeah. And then maybe if, if, if there's anything I want to add, I could just, you know, uh, quickly sure, throw sure, it in sure. at the end, maybe. All right, that sounds good. All good. Let's start with um, Occupy. Cool. Because that seems like maybe one of the places where your like major involvement in political organization began. But maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. So I, I, I was very involved with Occupy in Baltimore. Uh, Occupy movement was a really big turning point for me. I would say that I've been a socialist since I was in high school. And, you know, being a socialist in a pretty conservative area like Long Island, New York, made me a really popular kid in high school. Let me tell you, <laughs> I really recommend it to all your listeners if you're in high school. Um, but uh, but I have one particular class that stands out in my mind and the teacher, like everyone hated the teacher except for me, because basically he was a lawyer and he turned into a teacher. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why. And basically he would just ask us to go at it, like take pick a side, argue you argue argue your heart out and that was just so much fun for me just to figure out where i stood politically and you know i realized pretty early on that, that i was obviously a socialist you know i wasn't with the green party yet but i i had a strong desire to break into some activism and be with an organization of like-minded people so if i could stop you for just a second um i'm kind yeah. of curious about becoming a socialist in high school this is actually something we've discussed on a actually as of yet unaired episode of the podcast. But um, <laughs> but uh, we talked about um, our first exposures to socialism and, and how like for Brandon and I, who are around your age, we're I'm, I'm a little younger than you, but not by very much. Our first exposures to socialism in like high school era were pretty bad. So how did how did you get exposed to socialism in a positive light and decide it was for you at that young of an age in a culture that really doesn't promote that at all, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Well, that's a really good question. I would say I had a pretty negative view of socialism when I was in middle school. And then for some reason, I started researching it on my own when I was in high school. And um, I had a, a very positive view of it after I did my own research. And, you know, world events were changing for me right around that time. Well, for everybody, I would yeah. have been, I think I was in my junior year. I don't think it was senior year when 9-11 happened. And there were some kids in my class that I guess you could say were closer to anarchists. 
anarchist, you know, like the grungy emo anarchist type. That was not mm -hmm. my scene, but at least they were uh, well-spoken and could articulate some of the things going on in the world. And I started to just look into socialism and I was sort of isolated out there. I think it's a little different now, but um, that was sort of my first exposure to it. It was sort of self-exposure and I really didn't know much about any particular kind of socialism, you know, Trotskyism, Leninism, you know, all that stuff. And I still don't really go deep into those rabbit holes. But I mean, you know, I guess for me, it, it sort of made sense even at a young age because I could kind of see that capitalism really didn't have a path for young people, I guess I could say. I mean, I sound so old saying this stuff, I tell you. Um, but really what it was is I just didn't see a clear economic path for young people at the time. Mm. You know, I mean... I'll give you an example. Like I was finally exposed to political science at a really late age in my high school experience. And when I went into college, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to go into political science. I want to be in politics. My professors were very honest and they said, hey, you know what? You could uh, get an internship in Albany, New York, or you can get an internship in DC, but make sure mommy and daddy pay for you for a couple of years because it's going to be unpaid when you work for that congressman or that delegate. And DC ain't cheap. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> They're like, what if I need to make money? And they just kind of laughed and said, you know, that's just not really on the table if you want to intern with the congressional staffer or a delegate. And I just took off. I just said, forget this. It's not for me. And that really kind of cemented that capitalism doesn't really care about you. I mean, there's a chance you could be really successful under capitalism. There's always a chance. There's a chance I could go to a Trump casino and win big. But, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, socialism just makes a lot more sense. It's a society that actually attends to achieve things and make people better and engage people. And, you know, there are definitely downsides to some of the socialism that has been enacted in, in the name of socialism and Marxism over the years, and we could go into that. But for me, I like the I, appeal of creating a better society. And I quickly saw that a lot of the narratives that the capitalists had for why their vision was better was complete BS, just, just total BS. I mean, I work in technology now, and in the tech field, you see companies trying to suppress others' patents all the time. You know, you see technology, you know, like my cell phone's obsolete basically after I take it out of the box. Mm -hmm. I have to throw it in a dumpster and then yeah. it goes to rot in a landfill. I mean, like, you know, there's we don't live in a socialist economy at all. We live in a capitalist economy and it's just a throwaway yeah. culture of nonsense. And, you know, I can go on and on about medical debt, student debt, all these different problems that I feel are, are really directly related to capitalism. So that, that was sort of the first intro for me. Yeah, we probably will get into some of them. I have to ask because we, we were a little curious. We noticed a subtle star trek reference on your website oh okay and i i wondered if that was in any way involved in your thoughts on socialism on your issues page it's for the no more bullshit jobs and it's like a screen cap of star trek in some <laughs> classroom or something <laughs> i'm so glad someone found that man uh you all are, are making my day let me tell you um yeah it is it's from the classroom scene on, on uh, ds9 that you yeah. know i mean for for me almost any utopian vision of the future involves a society without money a society that's far closer to a socialist vision than a capitalist vision oh you know almost every time you see a capitalist future society it's not really very advanced or you know we still have basic fundamental political and social problems and economic problems mm -hmm. so i just felt very strongly from a young age you know that to advance society you know i will say this because i guess you know you i'm not sure about your audience and if this is going to relate but you know like Kardashev scale. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It'd be embarrassing if I wasn't. 
that to me, you know, the scale of human progress, we're not really making a lot of progress under capitalism. We're just sort of sitting here mm -hmm. in, in a puddle of our own filth, kind of arguing over which economic driver we should focus on when really, you know, the whole system's corrupt and is leading us off a cliff of planetary ecocide, apocalypse, and uh, no real security for any young person, uh, financial or planetary. So one of the reasons I really wanted to do this such a young age is because I, I wanted I wanted to be at least one presidential candidate that was going to be speaking with this younger person's perspective that, you know, it's not just that the planet is screwed. It's not just that young people don't have enough money. It's that we are literally just passing the buck on making the world a better place. And, you know, I often call it a human rights based economy. Sometimes I call it a socialist economy. It sort of depends on the audience. But really, we're talking about an economy where we value human rights and the rights of people to have what they need to survive. And, you know, that's housing, health care, that's decent food, that's clothing, shelter. You know, I mean, it's all the basics. Our economy right now doesn't provide any of those. I mean, you could literally be starving homeless on the street. You have no right to a house, per se, even if there's tons mm -hmm. of vacant homes right in your own personal city. So, you know, yeah. the economy doesn't make any sense under capitalism, and we're not really going to progress at all. It only really seeks to further itself. Yeah, it really, well, in my opinion, it seeks to make more money for capitalists. And that's pretty much the extent of what it does. Even scientific progress, I would argue, is now being stifled under capitalism, not being helped. And we can certainly talk about that, too, but I'll leave it there for a moment. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all really interesting. Let's just, before we go full steam ahead into the now, let's jump back to Occupy for just a minute, because I did... Oh, sure. I, we got into some interesting side topics. No, yeah. you're good. We, I mean, like, the, getting sidetracked is fine, but I do still want to hear a little bit more about your time in Occupy, what that was like for you. Specifically, kind of like, what do you feel was successful about Occupy, and what do you feel like kind of failed would be some interesting things to kind of get into, maybe? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to back up from Occupy just for a second. Okay, no just problem. To go, just to say right before that. So basically, I came into Baltimore, you know, a kid from the suburbs of Long Island. You know, I, I sort of thought that, well, Baltimore City with a Democratic majority for decades and Maryland being a very pro-Democrat state was going to be a very interesting and vibrant political place full of, uh, you know, people trying to make the city better. And uh, what I found was that it was rough. Baltimore is a really rough city. It's been under Democratic rule for decades and they really have haven't made much progress. So I started getting involved with some socialists there, sort of my first experience being in some different socialist organizations. And I sort of bounced around between a couple different socialist organizations to find some ones that were right for me. And I really liked the ones that were like, you know, preaching this old school method of actually working with working class folks. Like you can't just sit at home all day on a computer and research the revolution. You actually have to talk to people about what's happening in their workplace. Like, what are the struggles going on in your yeah. area? What can I help you get involved with? That's sort of when Occupy came along. I was there when Occupy was started in Baltimore. So let me jump back to the Arab Spring, because the Arab Spring, particularly the Egyptian one, was one that really uh, inspired me a couple year, I think, before Occupy, maybe two. It kind of the precursor of Occupy. One of the things that I felt about the Arab Spring was that, especially the Egyptian one, their number one demand was, you know, get rid of Mubarak, get rid of the president at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fine to, to, to see what common ground you have with your fellow activist on the street. That's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you're organizing for, that's all you're going to get. 
And that's kind of what happened to the Arab Spring in Egypt. I mean, they got rid of the president. It was hailed as a big success. And then corrupt generals went right back into power. You know, power conceives nothing without a demand, you know, is a quote that I often really think about. And it's one that we Mm. should think about as activists, because Mm. if we're just demanding, get rid of Donald Trump, get rid of Donald Trump, well... All you're going to get is someone else who's not Donald Trump. Doesn't mean you're going to get someone significantly better. So I really want people to have an individual list of demands. Uh, you know, this is sort of my my method of activism and organizing that they could be empowered to ask for, to call for, to organize for, and then to teach other folks that may not know about it. So you know, for me, I, I'm really focused on economic issues. Around that time, I wasn't just organizing with socialists. I was also organizing with alternative currency projects like the Baltimore Beanote. It's an alternative currency in Baltimore. Uh, time banking. I was briefly involved with the Zeitgeist movement. I'll just, you know, put that out there. The third movie, Moving Forward, really spoke to me, and that was right around the time of Occupy. And I was also with a lot of socialist organizations, too. All of this kind of came together for me. I was also in some organizer trainings at the time. So one of the greatest successes, I think, of Occupy was the way it was organized, that decentral organization that Mm. ushered it into existence and that it had to struggle to keep. The friend of mine, his name is Mike Haynes, and he actually brought one of the creators of the consensus movement to Occupy Baltimore because mm. they were having some issues around organizing and structure. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of consensus organizing at the time. I'm still a big fan of consensus and the model versus mm-hmm, Robert's Tools of Order. For anyone out there that's interested in that conversation, it's probably pretty boring, but I can go on about it if you want. <laughs> it's not exciting at all just kind of as a sidebar could you just for people that don't know you, we, we don't have to go into a whole discussion about it but just kind of briefly expound on the differences yeah sure so robert's rules of order is basically what you see like a modified version of in congress or at your local city council meeting or something like that it's pretty dictatorial there's a big book and you read the big book and they give you cheat notes and sometimes you have a parliamentarian to help you through it and you have a whole big process and procedure and basically consensus is sort of like dispelling a lot of that it takes traditions from a lot of uh native methods of organizing throughout the world and sort of says you know anyone can come into your space and start organizing in this method called consensus and occupy used consensus quite a bit and modified it quite a bit with the hand gestures that you see at the park mm. and different ways people can take the mic and take the floor it's really mostly about access to the floor so you know if i walk into parliament or congress first of all security doesn't throw me out because i try to walk onto the floor i won't be able to just walk up to the floor and grab the mic you know they throw me out you know i have to learn the procedures and all that you know talk to the representatives ahead of time with consensus you can you know get on the stack you could give you give your speech right then and there there are folks to fill you in on what's going on it's a different model of organizing Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, Occupy Baltimore was having some issues. So, you know, one night I was able to step in and I don't want to say lead it, but uh, uh, I was the moderator, I guess you could say, for an evening down there at Occupy. It was an amazing experience. It it, it, it really was. Occupy in Baltimore... <sighs> Baltimore has a lot of homeless. We have a lot of folks that are on drugs in various different forms. The opioid crisis pretty pretty hard here. A lot of heroin use. And where we did Occupy, I, I got to tell one quick story. This this is a good story. So when they were deciding where to put Occupy, the local anarchist bookshop basically called the meeting at one of their spaces, and a lot of people showed up. And they asked, you know, where are we going to do Occupy? The park down at City Hall. And a young person stood up and said, "I'm a young lawyer, and I've been studying this, and we really should." 
do it at this new waterfront development. Like it was like the mayor's baby, the Inner Harbor. Basically, it's like all these shops, they're open really late. But basically, there was a legal loophole that allowed folks to be out there 24-7. And in a park, the park closes at dusk. So if we were to do Occupy in a park, we would have been legally thrown out at dusk that night. But because this young guy stood up and just said, hey, you know, I'm a young lawyer. I want to give my opinion. And here's my opinion that we should do it. You know, this is a room probably of 200 people, you know, and he stood up again and echoed his point. And because of that, we were actually able to have Occupy last as long as it did because we had every legal right to be there. And then another young person stood up at that same meeting and said, well, they're trying to build a children's prison, literally a prison for children just up the road. And we should organize our first march should be to demand that children's prison be stopped because it's a waste of funds. You know, we don't even have clean drinking water in the schools here in Baltimore. And here they are building a children's prison. So that's sort of the origins of Occupy in Baltimore. Very organic, very democratic. And, you know, I really enjoyed my time down there getting different groups to talk to each other that normally would never talk. That's sort of been a repeated theme with me. You know, if folks aren't talking, if they're thinking one way, if they're a cryptocurrency person, I want them talking to a socialist. If they're a socialist, I want them talking to a new economy person. You know, I think that we're not going to build anything unless we learn how to talk to each other and work together, even though I'm obviously a socialist and a revolutionary one at that. Uh, Hey, Ian, Brandon Buchanan here. Hey, Brandon. I'm very glad to not be the oldest person on this show anymore. It's just wonderful. (laughs) Listen, do you feel like, I think you've spoken a lot about movement building, and I think it's safe to say that you support more horizontalism in these movements. Do you think that that kind of space is more open to sabotage or bad faith or bad ideas? And do you think that those kind of structures should be defended? And if so, how? Uh, Just give me your general thoughts on that. This is a fantastic question. I am always for more horizontalism. I'm just going to say that. I think it's important. I think it's important to bring everyone into the room. Now, here's some of the things that I've personally seen. If someone's out to sabotage your organization, like let's say you're actually infiltrated by a provocateur. It's very difficult to tell that person's motive. Whatever we normally think about and we think about someone who's being provocative or think about someone that's out to ruin an organization, like it's usually not coming from that direction. Like when I work with the Baltimore B-Note, there were people that were like, well, what if Walmart came and tried to be on our board and then Walmart would take over the B-Note? And it was like, it was like, that's not really realistic. Like like, Walmart's not interested in squatting in your basement, you know, alternative (laughs) currency project and doing your hand signals. Like that's not realistic. But way more important to look out for is who are we electing or putting in positions of power in those organizations. I've worked with a lot of different organizations that put people in power that immediately regretted it. I mean, to me, one of the largest examples comes to mind was 2017 uh, with the DSA when they elected a cop organizer to their national Mm -hmm. steering committee. And immediately there were calls for like this guy to be like, he was in the airplane and there were calls for like him to be, you know, like to the gallows with him, you know, like it was, it was rough. It was intense. So a little bit of guidance about, you know, who these people are and what their careers are would really be helpful. Now, you know, it's, it's a balance because you really do want to make sure that you're encouraging younger and younger folks to get involved. But I've seen organizations get shut down that were doing actions like every month 
um, you know, taking the streets whenever there's a, an unarmed black man killed in Baltimore City, literally taking the streets, cops like lining the streets, telling us to get out of the streets. And we're just marching because, you know, that this is what we do. Uh, you know, I've seen those organizations like suddenly get like thrown into turmoil because of uh, a sexual harassment scandal or something like that. It's so important to have an organization ready for that. Like, I'll be frank with you. Like, I, I know for a fact the DSA was not ready for its growth spurt. And it had to really struggle to bring on staff members that were ready to handle just like the amount of interpersonal conflicts they were getting at national office. I know like the same thing is true of any organization. Your organization doesn't have a policy for how to handle complaints. Uh, right there at Occupy, there were complaints of various different kinds of things. Drug use, the cops came in. While I was actually like publicly speaking that one night and moderating it, the cops came in and claimed that someone stole something at an Urban Outfitters and ran into the crowd. I mean, that doesn't make... <laughs> doesn't make any sense, but that's what they claim. You've got to be ready mm -hmm. with those kinds of things. You've mm -hmm. got to have security folks. You've got to have the security culture. You just can't start spontaneously organizing them and not expect for people to come in with, maybe they have different attitudes than you. I knew one person one time that literally worked with us. I won't even say what organization. I don't want to discredit them, but they just came in and said, I'm a really great CEO. So you all should appoint me CEO because I'm going to be the best CEO. And we were like, this is a eco-socialist group. Like we don't need a CEO in an eco-socialist group. You know, like that, that's just not <laughs> translating yeah. here. That's why I'm a big fan of like, the more you can plan ahead for that kind of thing, if you have the opportunity to, the better. You need elders that you can trust in the group as well. You really do. Because some of these old timers that I've had the privilege of working with have seen it all. I mean, they've seen people turn informant. They've seen people turn and blast others in the group just for personal gain, or maybe they're just upset, Um, you know? So that is one of my plans and my projects during this uh, presidential campaign is I want to make sure younger folks have a chance to talk to older leaders that have done that organizing work that can get that kind of life experience from them and understand how they dealt with it back in the day without even internet and stuff like that. Because I think that'll help us build a better, stronger left uh, in the here and now. Uh, you're running for president. You have a crowdsourced platform. And I think you're the only person in any party that's doing that. If we get a lot of of participating in that platform and it's fully crowdsourced, uh, what do we need Ian for? Can we replace you with like an app? Yeah. <laughs> That would be, be awesome. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you it's not. We didn't expect you to say that. We did not expect I mean, that answer, man. No, I mean, you know, look, I mean, well, there's two, so there's two different things, right? So first of all, I mean, I really try to my hardest to see everyone's point of view, and I'm a revolutionary socialist, but I work. There's a lot of anarchists in Baltimore. There's a big anarchist community, and you know, I think they do wonders for the community. To be frank with you, like if you are in it just because you want some big title or you know some book deal at the end of it, like you're in it for the wrong reason, you know? Like, like let's go back to the utopian for a second, right? So if sure. you know, if we lived in a Star Trek universe, you know, with replicators and you know not having to deal with money and all that, like people could finally relax you know like i wouldn't have to get up every day and say where's my next meal coming from you know how am i keeping up with folks am i am i gonna you know have enough you know for, to feed my family or are my relatives going to be okay you know that the, all those things go away and i think you're finally going to separate those folks that are doing this for their own personal egos and for the narcissism who want that instant credibility and those folks that are like hey we did it 
Like, we made a better society. We're all doing this together. And now, you younger folks, your turn to take over because, yeah, like, you could do it directly yourselves. That, to me, is why more people don't crowdsource their platform or use direct democracy tools like we're trying to do in this campaign is sort of beyond me. You know, like, basically, I had to work hard to find some folks. I'll give a shout out to Peter. Maybe he's listening. He's one of our moderators who, who checks that site, makes sure no one's writing crazy stuff on it. Um, you know, uh, you know, if anyone sees anything crazy, let me know. But other than that, you know, I wanted to get it up as soon as possible. As soon as we had some kind of check on it, we wanted to get it up as soon as possible. Because, I mean, for me to sit here and tell you, oh, I know exactly how the world should be run. And the president of the U.S. basically does kind of run the world, unfortunately. And we can get into that later. Is lunacy. It's going to sound weird, but there's a quote from an old Offspring song I used to listen to way back. And I'm kind of embarrassing myself here talking about this. But like, you know, with the world without leaders who'd start a new war. I mean, that's just that's just mm-hmm. that's just the accurate situation. And I, 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 I seriously feel, you know, that all the world is sort of a communications error. I mean, you know, we can't approach everyone around us like our enemies. We've got to have kind of a better international view of that and make sure everyone gets treated equally and has equal access to power. And so, yeah, I mean, that would include myself as well. And, and that's the that's the mm-hmm. kind of revolution I'm looking to bring about. And there's examples of this, too. Uh, I mean, there's economic examples of this kind of revolutionary stuff. Like, I'm not a big Cuba guy, but I work with a lot of organizations that really respect Cuba, and I've developed a deep respect for that area myself. And one of the things I know they do there is they put economic development right into the hands of the people. So maybe they don't have the resources to give you a bulldozer and cement, but they'll give you the cement mix and the tools and tell an area, you know, hey, if you want to improve your own housing, like, here's all the tools to do it. And in a way, like, that's sort of what we did in Baltimore with, like, the Baltimore Tool Bank, which is still going around, or the Baltimore um, Free Store, or, like, you know, other projects that we developed there. So I, I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of reason to to celebrate putting yourself obsolete. That's another reason I like a basic income guarantee, because I feel, you know, a lot of the work we do right now is just is bullshit. I, mean, I don't know if I can curse on your show. Uh, no, no. Feel, can, right? feel free. Feel free. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, yeah. Like, a lot of the jobs we have today are just bullshit jobs. Like, you know, um, yeah. you know, it's complete. A lot of folks are just working at a fast food restaurant, especially in Baltimore, just to make some ends meet. But really, we don't really need fast food restaurants. We don't even know the fast food restaurant to open up. It pollutes the air. The food stinks. You know, it's not very good. You're just working at it to get a paycheck and everyone who eats it isn't really healthy. Like, you know, like th- there's no community control of that. There's capitalist control. So, I mean, I- I'm just tired of this bullshit system. And I guess I'll leave it there for the moment. I don't want to <laughs> filibuster that question. Okay. So you made a good point in why should we have a president and that, you know, the quote you said, you know, a world without leaders can't start wars. But unfortunately, we do have presidents. So why should you be the next president or at least be the next Green Party candidate? Okay, that, that that's a good question. So first of all, I worked for a very long time with the DSA. And I'm sure most of your audience knows who the DSA is. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I was one of their first national endorsements back in 2016, me, a guy named Mike Sylvester, and then one other person, I can't remember their name. And then I went on to be on their uh, national electoral committee. And I saw the DSA go from, you know, an organization that had nationally supported three people for office to an organization that got state delegates elected with Lee something other, I can't remember his name in Virginia. Lee Carter from Virginia. Lee Carter. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You know, then we got some state delegates elected. And then finally, AOC was elected. So I mean, I've seen organizations just within two to four years develop a strategy for how they're actually going to get folks elected to Congress. And I really think the Green Party 
should be looking at that strategy. And that's a big part of my campaign. I ran for city council in 2016 in Baltimore City. We came in second in a four-way race. I'm very proud of it. But I looked around and I said, well, what's below city council in Baltimore City? And there was a position on the public housing board. And my good friend, Reverend Annie Chambers, who's a former Black Panther and a delegate now for housing, we in the Green Party helped get her elected because she helped me in my campaign. I turned right around and said, I'm going to help you in your campaign to get elected to RAB board. And then last year, we just got our second RAB delegate elected. And this is another delegate that actually gets to sit on the housing board in Baltimore City and fight when Ben Carson and Trump try to raise the rent of people in public housing or tear down public housing, which a lot of Democrats are trying to do in Baltimore City. So, you know, and from that, now we have people who hated the Green Party in Baltimore City saying like, oh, you know, Reverend Annie Chambers, that former Black Panther, she's a rabble rouser, can't have her on the board. And now they're like, oh no, they're trying to tear down another public housing project. Quick, get the Green Party and Reverend Chambers and Ian Schlackman because we got a protest. You know, like in just a year or two, that's the turnaround now in Baltimore City. So, you know, it kind of speaks to the, to the way I want to grow the Green Party. I want a Green Party that's focused on grassroots organizing with down ticket candidates, candidates mm-hmm. at local level. And then from there, we get some state delegates elected. And then from there, we have someone in Congress. That's my vision for the Green Party. And it's something that I really want to bring to the National Green Party. Now, the other side of this is my uh, political platform. My politics, I would say, have evolved quite a bit. And I think that if you start to look at the position of president, the president's number one role is commander in chief. Like, we really can't lose sight of that. So, yeah, it sort of annoys me a little bit when folks are talking about policies and laws that they want to enact with the president because it's not really your job with your president. You don't really make laws. You can ask for a law to be made. You may not get it. But you could do whatever you want with the military almost day one. So I'm really glad like you all had an episode on Department of Peace, I'm pretty sure. That's the kind of thing that I'm looking to do on an international level. Because the State Department, you're the top diplomat. You have the commander-in-chief status with the military. You could basically undo American empire in a very short amount of time if you're the president. And what's important to me is that same kind of feeling, you know, power can see something without a demand. So if we don't understand what our president can do, we don't really have a request or demands for the Democrats that may actually make it to the top and get the seat. We have to demand that they end empire. We have to put the pictures together for them. Whenever we buy a military jet, we are not spending money on infrastructure here at home. Whenever we bomb another country, like we may bomb Iran and spend those millions of dollars on that, you know, then we can't uh, rebuild the water supply here in Baltimore City. We don't even have clean drinking water in schools or in Newark or in Flint, Michigan, where they don't have clean drinking water anywhere. So, I mean, these are connected issues. You know, I think at that point in time, we could start to realize that America is actually an empire. We are sort of the last empire and our actions internationally are what other countries are going to look to emulate. China did not start out as a capitalist country. We told them, you're going to be capitalist to participate with us. And they basically said, okay, we'll play at your own game. Now China has some of the biggest banks in the world, you know, bigger than the U.S.'s. And now we're unhappy with them again. Look at human rights violations, like with Saudi Arabia. You know, I mean, we can't claim to be the world superpower and then pick and choose. Oh, but if you're delivering oil or if you are giving billions to our politicians, in the case of like the, the Bushes and Saudis, 
you know, I mean, that you're okay. You yeah. know, you're okay to be a, you know, human rights violator. Like, th this is sort of getting out of hand. So I, I think we have to completely scale back our military infrastructure. We've got to get rid of our military bases abroad, bring the troops home, and then actually re-engage internationally and say, we're not going to take any more unilateral military actions. From here on out, we are going to be focused on doing things in cooperation with organizations like the UN. And if they don't agree that we should be going to war, then we're not going to war. It's that simple. I think we're pretty in agreement with you on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or at least on a lot of levels, because uh, we're definitely a very peace-oriented mm -hmm. podcast. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Let me, let me ask you a, a tough question. How much of American living standards are based on imperialism? Like, how much of, of our way of life is based materially around sweatshop conditions in the third world or the military having a presence around the world. And as president, if you think it's a, to a great degree, how do you entangle that? And what standard of living should people be prepared for under a more socialist world? This is, <laughs> this is such a great question because uh, it kind of gets at the heart of what I'm talking about. So I think right now you are seeing Trump and Pompeo actually considering maybe to buy the end of this podcast. They have announced a, a strike on Iran due to the fact that they think Iran bombed the yeah. oil field. Uh, you know, so... Yeah, ba based on how fast news is moving, we might, by the time this episode gets uploaded, be already at war with Iran. <laughs> it's completely insane. And let me just say, you know, those drone attacks could be done by anybody. So that's real shaky ground for that intelligence, but that's a whole other matter. Let me answer your question directly, though, because this is real important. First of all, we have to recognize the fact that we may be going to war to finance, like, people's suburbans and chevy tahoes like that's like the first thing we have to get out of the way you know i mean we've had ample time to realize we should move off fossil fuels whether you're making a personal choice or a private choice is not really my concern like i don't think we should be going to war because you know someone's hummer is going to have to pay 20 extra bucks at the pump like that's that's crazy to me that's absolutely insane but second of all i want to talk about the economic conditions of younger folks and our new reality here because everyone i know who had one point in time had their income reset back to zero. Like maybe you had a medical debt that you had to take a bankruptcy on. Maybe you're still paying off your student loan uh, and you can never get rid of that. Maybe, you know, your husband passed away, your wife, and you lost your main source of income and now you're struggling. Like number one thing you're going to struggle with is paying your car, paying for your rent, probably eating nothing but terrible fast food or certainly not organic. Your standard of living has already been reduced. I know so many younger folks that couch surf most of the time or try to get in a situation where they're living in someone's basement because they just could never possibly afford a thousand bucks a month in rent, they just don't make enough money for that. So the idea that like our standard of living is going to go down is based on the idea that most people are still middle class. And I take fundamental issue with that idea. I think most people mm -hmm. are quickly, quickly falling out of the middle class. And I think you see this dialogue with the Democratic primary kind of saying like Elizabeth Warren folks, oh, let's keep people in the middle class by going after the banks. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, like keep the middle class by, by having the 1% pay their fair share. Like, no, that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is leveling the playing field for everybody. 
right? So whenever we talk about universal health care, mm -hmm. what do they bring up? Oh, Canada has long wait times. Well, Canada has a system where every single person is covered. So yeah, I'm going to have to wait longer and that person who having a heart attack is going to go ahead of me. But I'm going to know that if I have the heart attack, I'll be able to get treatment and I won't be billed for being in an ambulance. So, I mean, take that one example of a universal right to health care and then apply it to universal right to housing. You know, I, where I live in Baltimore, we have way more vacants than we have homeless people. So maybe it's time to start fixing up those vacants and putting homeless people in them. Is there any profit in that? No, there's no profit in helping a homeless person. When I give a homeless person a dollar, I don't expect a return on my investment. But that's the way capitalism thinks. That's why there's homeless. That's why there's people that are in dire need of economic help right now. So the whole system has been terrible for, for a very long time. And I don't think those people that are imagining our, our parents' generation or our parents' parents' generation of this baby boomer, you know, world where as long as you, you know, try hard, you'll make lots of money. I think those days are, are literally gone. It's a fantasy. And, and good riddance is kind of the way I see it because we can't keep this up. China has way more people than us and they want to be middle class next. And they see us with Hummers and they want to know why they can't have Hummers. You know, they see us with McDonald's, now you got McDonald's in China. So just turn the whole system around. Just engage with China directly and say, look, okay, we are going to cap our military spending. We will not spend past this. Or we will reduce our military spending by 300 billion. And we hope you do the same in half your military spending. China's preparing to get more military because of us. I mean, you know, like, they're growing their military because we see us beating them militarily over and over again. And I'm not making this up. A recent Forbes article actually said U.S. is struggling because the U.S. is no longer the dominant power in Asia. And I had to do a double take. It's like, we don't live in Asia. China should be the major <laughs> military power in Asia. I don't need to have my tax dollars spent to keep an Asia safe. I don't know what that even means. You know, I don't know what's needed on that side of the world. You know, like, like we have to engage these countries in completely different ways ways and say, we can't keep our middle class, quote unquote, afloat. We need to rethink this whole middle class thing. We need to make sure everyone has enough to live. And, you know, what makes me a little different than I think the traditional socialist, because I'm a tech, I also have this whole thing about innovation too. We don't have the right to innovate in this economy. If you're a genius professor and you discover a new way to build a better cell phone or a new way to build a better computer, what can you do? You can go to HP, Microsoft, Apple. You can tell them, I have this great idea and they'll probably buy it from you and bury it. That's what happened to the electric car. Electric car was the first car, first of all. And then we had gasoline cars. And what did the car companies do and the oil companies? They said, no, 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 can't have oh, yeah. an electric car. So, I mean, we, we've come to a point in our society where these crises are coming to a head. But more importantly, it's beyond time to admit that all of this could change if we just change the way that we manage our economy. And that's the summation of what I'm trying to get at. And that's why it leads back into international national policy too, mm -hmm. because we're engaging in two new cold worlds with China and Russia. We can't keep doing this cold war strategy. We've got to engage people and say, none of us have the money or the resources to do this anymore. And even if we did, we kill ourselves with all the fossil fuels we'd be burning. So it's time <laughs> to end the madness. So uh, what do you think an ethical tech industry would do right now, given social media, given the influence of advertising on our lives? Just all of those those things that Facebook and Amazon are doing in terms of data collection, all that stuff. Also, just what's it like being in the tech industry as somebody who's obviously way to the left of the typical tech industry yeah, kind of mentality? 
you know, first of all, I think we forget that when the first internet computer code or software was made uh, and shared amongst hackers in uh, colleges across the country, one of the first things that they did was declare software to be an entity that wasn't going to be for profit. They tried to say software code, data, the internet is not for profit. And there's this like really famous letter amongst techies of Bill Gates writing to one of the founders of Linux or Unix at the time, basically saying like, please, please, please let me patent my software. Let me make tons of money off of this because, you know, I could be a billionaire one day. And, you know, he got his way, obviously, and he was one of the first tech billionaires. So there was right from the very beginning of the tech industry uh, of the hacker community, a divergence between those that wanted to keep information free and those that wanted to uh, use it like any other commodity. You fast forward to today, a lot of tech folks have really made me want to get more involved with public policy. I mean, I was inspired to run for Congress in 2014 because of Edward Snowden, because Edward Snowden is a Maryland native. And my congressperson was this guy named Dutch Ruppersberger. And Dutch Ruppersberger was this like crazy pro-NSA Democrat. And there was not one ethical violation that the NSA or the intelligence community couldn't do that this guy didn't like. It was nuts. So I got to debate him on stage as a Green and tell him, you know, like, you should be ashamed of yourself for calling Edward Snowden uh, a liar. And he turned around to me and said, no, Edward Snowden was a traitor, you know? So, I mean, but a couple months after that, he did get pulled off the House Intelligence Committee and put on by someone a little more moderate than him. But I think that just goes to show you that, you know, where we organize, we're not going to get the credit, but at least we could start the conversation. There's two different kinds of problems here that I think could be addressed by socialism. So one is, like, if you're in the research world, right, you kind of know that, like, you're basically always right grants. You're always looking for that next opportunity to make that money and to get funded or else you're doing nothing. You're not able to uh, become a researcher anymore. Your, your days are done. Like you have to keep focused on pulling in grants. You know, so that right there is a, is a clear break with capitalism. Like we should be allowing researchers to do important research. I think it's on my website. You know, we should be focusing our incredibly high military budget right around onto scientific research and development and infrastructure. And those three go hand in hand, you know, and I think patent laws would be something you'd see go away immediately under socialism. I mean, even billionaire capitalists like Mark Cuban are talking about how horrible patent laws are. There are trolls that get patents and just sue everyone on the planet and people can't make developments on them. So it's clearly an issue. And I think one of the biggest problems that I think is coming to light now that some of the tech billionaires and billionaires are dealing with is automation. And I can tell you this, this is real timely because of the recent GM worker strike that I was just in Detroit and I sat down with some GM workers and their families and their number one concern was automation. Their number one concern was automation. And they definitely fear what's coming down the pipe for them. And, you know, folks in Silicon Valley understand that they are putting millions of people out of work by AI tech and factory floor robots and other kinds of technology and soon to be truck drivers. And I think that's why you see the popularity of Andrew Yang. So, I mean, a basic income is a good place to start. I think you're seeing some tech folks talk about that. But just keep in mind, whenever Elon Musk sneezes, he gets an article about it. So there have been a lot of folks arguing for a socialist basic income guarantee or a feminist basic income guarantee that have not been getting anywhere much as media attention. And even Martin Luther King advocated for, for a basic income guarantee back in the 60s. And that is covered way less than anything Elon Musk does. So I think it's important to, uh, to realize that. Are you satisfied with Andrew Yang's UBI proposal? 
are there holes in it or problems with it that you see coming along the curve or does it just strike you as a good policy? We're only asking you because you know the ins and outs of it as someone who's advocated for it for a while. Yeah. And if you can just sort of afterwards extrapolate into what do you think of Andrew Yang and his kind of slate of proposals? I helped found a nonprofit called Basic Income Action, and we advocated for a basic income guarantee. And I can tell you this, the basic income community was really well organized way before Andrew Yang. I've met Andrew Yang. I've met some folks on his team. I've seen some folks who were organizers that I work with go work with him and then stop working with him. I mean, if you go to his rallies or actually hear him talk, he's pretty clear about what he's all about. He's literally saying that he thinks automation is the number one problem, and he also thinks a basic income guarantee, or he calls it a freedom dividend, is the right answer. He has this really interesting style of courting both like liberals and Trump supporters. It's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. And he does a really good job of making like mathematical calculations for all of his policies, which I appreciate. But I've asked him like dozens of times, you know, what is the difference between your human-centered capitalism and socialism or any different kind of socialism, reform socialism, revolutionary, I mean, any different kind. I mean, you know, there's, there's very different kinds out there. And he's just like, I'm not a socialist, pure and simple. I'm not a socialist like that. That's sort of his response and his campaign response. So I take issues with folks that are trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, when I, I mentioned earlier that I was at the very tail end of what was known as the zeitgeist movement back in the day. And my number one issue with those folks was that they weren't studying Marx or socialism at all. And, you know, it's like you can't pretend that you care so much about the hard sciences and the technology and the economic sciences and then not study the the social sciences, not study Marx, not mm. study Engels, not study other folks in that realm. I, that to me just kind of irks me. I mean, you know, at, at least be familiar with the perspective and understand where they're coming from and the critiques of capitalism. So I don't really know if that campaign is trying to do anything more than win the Democratic primary and then be prepared to win over Trump voters. Like his recent thing with the SNL comedian. He's like, I'm going to reach out to the SNL comedian. I don't think he should be fired. I mean, that's very clearly like a big olive branch to the Trump community. Like, come on, racist uncles. Like, come on into the Yang campaign. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, that's... Come on. When I'm president, I'll, I'll, I'll make it legal to make Asian jokes. I mean, yeah, that's, that's sort of what, you know, I mean, like, it's sort of like his, like, I'll pardon everyone on 420, you know, like, that, that has a marijuana offense. Like, that's great. That, that, that's good. But then, like, he's also sort of pardoning, like, you know, those folks that are courting racism or, like, you know, that we all, like, look at twice, yeah. you know, where they talk to us. Definitely. I mean, I'm glad someone's talking to Trump supporters. I don't really think that's the right answer, obviously. I think a lot of this comes back to scarcity. And I do think that might be the one sort of thing that the Yang team and my team kind of see as the same, which is that scarcity is a source of the problem. Like, you know, when the Charlottesville protesters were out there, two years ago and murdered uh, Heather Heyer. Their big rally on the campus was, the big rallying cry with the stupid tiki torches was, you know, Jews will not replace us, Black will not replace us, every other race under the sun will replace us. Because they directly see the fact that there are a limited set of jobs, high-paying jobs, and they're saying, those are ours. We want those jobs. Those were traditionally held by white people. We'll be damned if they're not going to be held by white people. And if you actually go into, like, public housing in D.C. or public housing in Baltimore, 
Baltimore. You'll hear from folks that have been organizing for decades to take those jobs out of white suburban hands and put jobs in the black community in urban D.C., in urban Baltimore, back into the hands of local residents. Like, this has been their thing for decades. Like, from the sit-in protest of the 60s, to holding unions accountable for being too white, to then, you know, trying to equalize pay and, you know, like... This has been a really important part of that Black American experience. And I don't think a lot of new leftists really appreciate that or understand that. So it's not really surprising to me that these folks are suddenly, you know, talking about how they feel like they're going to get replaced because a new generation of, I'll just say it, neo-Nazis are looking at their job prospects and they're going to get mad at every person that's brown or black under the sun before they look at themselves and say, I'm not qualified. You know, they saw their dad have that position or their mom and they don't understand why they're not doing as well. And the answer, simply put, is socialism. Like, the answer to that is that you should not have to compete to live. You should be able to live a decent life without needing to compete and bump other people out of your way. You know, and then when we get to that point, truly the best folks can rise to the top. Like, truly at that point, the best engineers could lead an engineering school or, you know, a, a civilian corps. You know, like, we're not at that point yet. We're still in this dog-eat-dog mentality under capitalism. And so I have a, a very different fundamental mental perspective of how to change that dynamic. And I know what the answer is socialism, but that's my answer. It's a revolutionary socialism. And you've put that in action. You've done a lot of local businesses and things. Can you explain to people what a time bank is and what a democratically run business organization looks like for people who haven't been in Baltimore and have no idea what that would even be? That, that's great. Yeah. The, I, yeah. I often forget, you know, we, we do have quite a few organizations in Baltimore that are uh, worker co-ops. So uh, a democratically controlled organization like a worker co-op is sort of what it sounds like. Basically, instead of there being a boss, there are still supervisors. There are still shift leads. There are still people in charge. But instead of being the boss says because the boss says or the capitalist says the workers actually have a stake in the company. They actually have a vote. You know, this is done in many different ways. In Spain, there are very large organizations like Mondragon that have really big, you know, almost looks like the union elections to strike, for example, that just took place with GM. Well, rather than that, the, the workers actually could vote. Are we gonna keep our factory here? Or are we going to keep our fa are we going to move the factory to Mexico? Like the workers would actually vote on that. And if it's an economic downturn, the workers would vote and they would say, are we interested in cutting people's salaries or are we interested in laying people off? Like that would be a, a, a thing put to the workers. But it's also same thing in good times. So if you get a big new order in and there's extra cash that goes into either a pre-allocated worker account or the workers would again vote on that and say, are we going to reinvest it in a new location or are we all going to take a long vacation? You know, like that's something that these democratically organized organizations do. Uh, worker co-ops are really big. I'll give a shout out to Democracy at Work Network. If you want to get more involved mm -hmm. with turning your organization into a, a democratically controlled one, that's definitely where I'd start. And the other thing that I worked with was a time bank. Uh, my mentor, Edgar Kahn, uh, in D.C., still writing and, and doing a lot of amazing organizing down there. He would talk quite a bit about, you know, there are no throwaway people. And he wanted a system where folks could just invest their time and then take time dollars out. So if I invest an hour of maybe mowing your lawn, then I could take that and I could use that to uh, get my house painted for an hour. Or maybe I could use that to take a sewing class, you know. It was like all different kinds of amazing things could be exchanged on a time bank. 
Uh, there's definitely limitations to that model, which is why I'm still a revolutionary socialist. I don't think any of these answers on their own are the full answer. But I mean, I do think we owe a lot mm -hmm. to these communities because like most credit unions, credit union was started by folks that were trying to do democratically controlled institutions by anarchists, basically. And we have to give credit where credit's due because, uh, you know, that's that, that's an important part of our history that people don't really know. Hmm. All right. So we uh, before you got on this show, we obviously did research on you. We read up, we talked to you, all that good stuff. <laughs> good. And one of our show hosts, we're not going to say who it was, said you look like all four Beatles put into a blender. <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to sneak that one into the show, man. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I, I thought this was going to be like a post-riffing nope. thing. <laughs> so before we wrap up, uh, who is your favorite Beatle and why? <laughs> oh, man. That's a... Man, what a question. Um, I guess I guess maybe Ringo. Mm, I don't nice. know. It just seems you like, really yeah, are you know. first guy. <laughs> That's why, you know, you know, of course you would pick the drummer. Someone's got to hold everything together, right? That's sort of the way I see it. Yeah. I'm also a Ringo fan, so. Or, there you go. I guess, I guess we say Stan in 29. I hate the Beatles. I hate all of them. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, you could you could have asked me about another. Yeah, I will be honest there. I, I you know, almost any other band. Uh, okay, what are you your know, What are your three favorite albums? For what the Beatles? No, no, not, no not, just better. No, just anyone. Yeah. Oh man, you kill me. Um. Uh. Jeez. Let's see. Um. I'm trying to think of stuff I've listened to recently. I've listened to Beach House recently. I've listened nice. to. Growler okay. had a really good recent album. I'm trying to think of a third one for you. I'm a really big Interpol fan, like a really big Interpol oh, fan. Oh, Even their yeah. new stuff, oh, I stick. Man. You're now I our favorite guest. <laughs> I stick. I stick with them. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's even you know, and I feel so old when their old stuff comes on, but I'm still like, yeah, man, I just I love it. Their old stuff yeah. is their best stuff. So it, it, you know, yeah. I, you, that's how you know you're getting old, right? When you start listening <laughs> to stuff and you're like, the new stuff's good, but where's the hits? You know, I mean, like, oh man. Yeah, but like really, like that first album is like an all time. Like that's obviously their magnum opus or whatever. So yeah, that's so true. Define my childhood. Yeah. All right, well, Brandon is starting to veer already into stuff that really should be post-show for the Patreon. <laughs> um, so let's, we like to end things on a, on, a, on a positive note around here. So Ian, if you could just quickly finish with one more thought, which is let's just, let's just positively assume that you get the Green Party nomination and that this is magically the year for the Green Party to just blow the heck up because it's kind of time for these ideas and you become president. What is something that you would do in that first day or that first week to just kind of better the world? What's yeah. some what's some vision you'd like yeah. to just have for that for that magical moment? Man, you know, I, I actually am working on a list for that because I, I think that it's really important people to understand how much the president could do just with their own independent authority. I guess a couple of things that come to mind off the top of my head are you definitely want to make sure everyone is pardoned who has a nonviolent drug offense. And for those that are still suffering with addiction, get them into an addiction program. I would immediately end foreign hostilities, like immediately. I think one of the biggest ones that come to mind is I would end the war on whistleblowers right away. I would stop 
the secret grand jury that is actually right now the reason that uh, Chelsea Manning is in prison because she's been indicted by a secret grand jury and she won't give up Julian Assange because there's nothing to give up. There's, there's nothing there. <laughs> and I would also stop these crazy charges at Julian Assange. Human Rights Watch has even jumped in on this and said, you know, the charges against Julian Assange are basically like that he's committing journalism abroad and he's not even an American citizen. Mm. So if we could actually extradite him to the U.S. and then, I don't know, torture him, keep him in prison, whatever we're planning on doing, that sets a chilling effect for the whole world. Like China will have nothing to say to us when we try to chastise them on human rights violations. We'll have nothing to say to them anymore because basically we'll be now abducting journalists from their home countries or from countries we have extradition treaties with that we don't like because we feel like they're talking about us in bad ways. I mean, these are incredibly important. Uh, I also want to just mention, because I always have to mention her, uh, hashtag free reality winner too, because that's another journalistic source that's in prison for leaking the Intercept. Yeah. If mm -hmm. we don't have a free press, we're sort of circling the drain here on that. I also think day one, we'd start the process of, of demilitarizing. I mean, that's that's such a yeah. big one for me. I mean, we need a commission immediately to start looking into how to denuclearize. Even the Obama administration was like, let's keep upgrading our nukes. Like, this is not going away, this issue. And then finally, you know, I think the most important one maybe would be what's going on on the border. I mean, the Green Party is the only party that I know that's saying have open borders. Uh, and by that, we mean that it is an international right to request asylum or to tell someone that you're a refugee fleeing hardship in your country. So when you come to the U.S., we can't cage you. Like, that's completely against international law. And then when we do this kind of stuff, European countries are doing the exact same thing. They're like, well, if the U.S. is caging people, we'll just turn them around when they try to flee Syria from being bombed to death. I mean, we set an enormous precedent internationally. And so I think a Schlackman administration, you'd see a new embrace of human rights that could only be done by a revolutionary socialist administration. And I think that power of the purse, like we would declare a climate emergency day one, but we would also tackle it through science and technology. You know, like we would have cores yeah. of people out there planting trees, but then also empowering researchers. We already have DARPA. I mean, that's, you know, the military's defense research uh, moonshot, you know, organization. Like, we could turn our military into a peace force that just, you know, <laughs> empowers universities to fund new research projects. I mean, we could literally change the world right now. I just think the problem is we don't understand what our own demands should be, and then we have to organize. And we've got to get organized quick, because, you know, all these things are connected and until we realize that you know we're going to leave something behind and capitalists are going to fight and pounce on it and we got to be more organized than they are because that's the only way that we beat them we're not going to beat them through financial resources i'll tell you right now <laughs> that's very well said ian tell us where we can go to like get involved with your campaign real quick Good question. Uh, well, you've already mentioned it, uh, you know, that I do have a crowdsourced platform. And so your audience can directly add their personal uh, policy projects or their personal ideas onto my platform. And we'll have folks vote on it, comment on it. We'll have a dialogue about it. Like, that's a big thing. And I wasn't the first one to do that, by the way. Like, the Internet Party in New Zealand actually did it before me. I probably... Yeah. I had some socialist friends that were asking me to do this for a while. And they referenced someone else that sort of did it in the U.S. But as far as I know, I think it's the first presidential one that you could do. So anyway, so my website is my name, schlackman.com, S-C-H-L-A-K-M-A-N.com. 
And right at that homepage, you'll see links to go to the platform and how to edit it. And we'd love to hear from you and love to keep you involved. And I do want to stick a plug in here because... Sure, go for it. Yeah, one of the next things we're working on is a really amazing way to get involved, to learn a bit more about some older school folks that have been organizing for a very long time and that I personally learned a lot from that have been in the struggle for years. And uh, I want to do my part to connect younger actors activist to them and their history and from there we could really start to learn from each other and start to build something more amazing so i can't say more than that right now but if you keep your eyes on schlackman.com or my twitter page i'm very active on twitter at i schlackman uh you'll see what i'm talking about very soon very cool wonderful uh we have been faithfully not safe for walks leia rose brandon buchanan i'm kennedy cooper and our guest has been ian schlackman thank you so much Thanks, everyone. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye.